you know, since the beginning of my career, Rectify is one of the best written things that I've uh, ever been a part of and ever read, whether that's on, on TV, film, or on stage. So... everyone welcome to killer serials this is tony jones this is ryan parker we're a couple dudes with phds in theology who talk about television because that's what they teach you in seminary ryan that's, to, that's what i learned how to watch television <laughs> better as people probably know we are uh going episode by episode through the show rectify on netflix and we turn our attention to the second season and we we open with, uh, well, we open with a pretty sweet cold open that we get to, but where we were left at the end of season one was Daniel, not unlike the uh, man on the way, you know, in, who, who gets helped by the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, beat within an inch of his life. Yeah. And, you know, Tony, I was going to say we're being very diligent about watching one episode a week. And not binging, because as we've said, all episodes are available now. Man, I couldn't imagine having watched this show, you know, kind of from day one. And and that what an ending to season one. What a cliffhanger. And having to wait, what what would it have been? Maybe a year, eight months to figure out what happens. And we're still left waiting in this first episode. Uh, He is, Daniel is is deep in a coma, um, having been beat almost to death. And in fact, has been in had a medically induced coma, so that his brain stops swelling or bleeding. Or you know, Amantha says this to her mother, and she doesn't even finish the sentence. Yeah, you, you do wonder. I mean, just if people are watching it like we are, episode by episode, and we know that season one went basically day by day through his you know first six seven days out of prison. And see this here we start again with basically a day in the life of Daniel post prison. You know, if it keeps going like this, of course, he won't even really be a factor in season two because he's got a long road to recovery. And I know that when we when we talked to one a couple of the writers a few episodes ago, they did kind of intimate to us that other characters get the spotlight in future seasons. So this might be one of the things that happens, I guess, is that we're going to find out more about other characters because Daniel is out of commission. Well, I'm so excited to see how this season develops because I thought that was one of the most intriguing aspects of this first episode of this season, how the the writers used Daniel's coma to go to flashbacks of his time in prison to have one more interaction with his friend Kerwin. There, there are two key flashbacks, one of which is Kerwin telling him to wake up, and the other is his kind of more nefarious, evil neighbor on death row also telling him to wake up. So it's this beautiful thing, and you realize that these flashbacks are to Daniel on death row in severe depression after Kerwin has been executed. 
And so it's this idea of like Daniel telling himself to wake up because he's in a coma, you would think, right? Uh, and then also memories of essentially being in a coma on death row um, and and whether you're going to live or die, right? Whether you're going to live on death row or whether he's essentially going to have this kind of spiritual death uh, of depression and, uh, and just kind of hiding, right? Of kind of, he's huddled up against the wall in his bed, and so to, to use that moment of inaction, right, in the part of your lead character who's laying in hospital bed to still flesh out character, history, backstory, and all that kind of stuff is, I thought was really effective. Yeah, and, and I want to leave it there and leave it at a cliffhanger because in the second half of this podcast episode, we have a, a very special guest in that actor, Johnny Ray Gill, who played Kerwin. And we can get more into those uh, dream sequence, coma sequence. Absolutely. Flashbacks. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not really flashbacks. They're actually dream sequences because they didn't actually happen. But we'll get to those. That's we'll a good point. Those. That's a good point. Yeah. What What I want to ask you your thoughts on, there, there are a couple pr- pretty deeply spiritual conversations. And one that I think shows really a very modern um, it, it's like it's basically a very modern dialogue about the state of religion or the reality of religion and it takes place between Amantha and Tawny in the yeah. uh, in the hospital corridor and I, I'm, I'm saying this because to me Amantha in this scene represents the cynical post you know, post-Christian, post-Enlightenment Christian who just thinks this whole idea of the supernatural being an agent who is engaged and involved with human affairs is ridiculous and unbelievable. And her dialogue partner is Tawny, who is a deeply faithful person, although as we've already said, she's not naively faithful. I mean, she's not just a one-dimensional evangelical, but she is very deeply faithful. And and it seems like now, for the first time in her life, is confronting some doubt. And her doubt uh, is over this question of theodicy, of, of basically, Daniel seems to her a good person. Why do so many bad things keep happening to him? Amantha's very... Amantha's very cynical response is, I just don't think that's how it works. There's just not a God up there keeping score. What what do you make of them standing in as archetypes for a very common religious dialogue in, in modern times? I, I felt it was completely natural uh, and and really resonating with the current moment that a lot of us find ourselves in in the pandemic, when, when these types of things happen, this kind of extreme suffering, even the most faithful are finally forced to confront their beliefs. And I finally, I, I see Tawny is finally um, asking questions that she's probably never asked before. She, you know, she says about Daniel, he suffered so much already. Think about it, you know, 18 years on death row. And then he gets home and less than a week later, he's in a coma in the ICU. And really, you know, Amantha gives the, the line that exposes a certain type of theology, right? If 
if God is somehow in control and ordaining of human events in a situation like this, well, God's an asshole. Yeah. Um, and she's not going to believe in a God like that. And, you know, it may be simplistic if you spend a lot of time thinking about and studying theology and, and investigating and researching different views of, of God and human agency and all these things. But it does seem to me to be a very human, believable, realistic, authentic conversation between two people in a, in a waiting room. I think that's right. You know, we know that Amantha, uh, we, we know that Janet's family is not religious, at least traditionally religious. They didn't grow up relig- uh, uh, as a church-going family, which in a small town in Georgia makes them outliers already. It's it's interesting here if you look at the three member through three main members of this family we don't really hear about Jared he's not in this episode and the younger brother does is, at least it, to this point is not much of a factor but you've got Amantha who is uh, cynical uh, who does who, who who kind of looks down on Tawny's faith she begins that conversation by mocking Tawny well you know. Aren't you glad Daniel's washed in the blood and both literally and figuratively? And yeah, so Tawny's response is very honest. Like, I think it was a mistake. I think it was. A, and she's already admitted that to her husband, Teddy. That's right. But that she thinks maybe it was a mistake to encourage Daniel to get baptized so quickly after getting released. So you've got Amantha, very cynical. You've got Daniel, who's clearly a seeker, you know, who mm-hmm. has read. Yeah. We know he in in uh, in on death row he he's read uh, the Divine Comedy. We know he's read the Bible. We know he's probably read all sorts of other theology and philosophy. And then you've got Janet, who asks Tawny to pray over Daniel when she leaves the hospital room. When she leaves Tawny alone in the hospital room, she yep. asks, "Would you pray over him?" Which I gotta say. I do like the that the writers got even that like that uh, agi- uh, I mean sorry that preposition is correct pray over him you know what I'm saying absolutely in the south hey. that's how they talk would you pray over him and Janet's yeah. showing a little crack she then says something like well it couldn't hurt or like she's almost guarding herself against faithfulness uh, right yeah. a, a, before she walks out well Tony I, I find this really compelling. Uh, you're you're talking about the ways in which Amantha is challenging, ridiculing, certainly not being moved by Tawny's faithfulness, right? Which which may be, I mean, she's there, right? She's there in in body and spirit. She's there out of concern for Daniel, but in this moment, she's she's kind of wrestling with these this theology, right? This kind of head um, experience of of God and religion. And, and Amantha is in no way moved by that. But what I find so beautiful later in the episode is when her landlord, Melvin, comes by with a gift for Daniel. And if this isn't one of the uh, richest characters in the series, you yeah. know, I don't know who is. I mean, the, the weight of his, of his spirit, of his presence. I mean, I was moved to tears. Um, th- you get the sense that this is somebody who values Daniel, realizes what he had in Daniel as a young formative teenager, uh, maybe who was a bit of an outsider, but Daniel showed some interest or, or kindness towards him. 
He is racked with regret for not being there for Daniel when he was on death row. You can tell that he's trying to make amends. Amantha is completely and totally moved by his presence um, at the hospital, um, moved to tears. And that, you know, to me, that's an interesting comparison between Tawny and Melvin and Amantha uh, kind of being in the middle there. If this notion of God is some, some entity that has control in human affairs is not sustainable, then what is the vision of God that, that we have that is effective, that is useful in the face of extreme suffering? And maybe it looks more like Melvin than it does Tawny. Maybe. It's just uh, something I was thinking about after watching that episode. Yeah. I mean, Melvin is such a, a character that uh, we, we all know people like Melvin. You know, he's probably single. He's very nerdy. He, Daniel probably was his friend in high school. Um, he's very awkward. Even the hug they exchange at the end is awkward. He's awkward in telling about the chocolate turtle that he's brought. Um, so good. Yeah, it's really, he, he is a rich character. You're right. And I think we see a little, I mean, I, as I've texted you, I'm not a huge fan of, of Amantha. I, I just think she's a bitter, nasty person who's really deeply insecure. But we do see a little break in, right in this, you know? Yeah, something's starting to crack. We see a little break. We, we see a little softness. And yeah. that's super nice to see. And, and I'm sure, I mean, this, this show is just too good for her character to be one-dimensional. You know, there's no just, way it's going to be one-dimensional. The potential for every single character. Hey, Tony, before we bring in Johnny Ray, I wanted to talk about one other spiritual component of this episode uh, just very briefly because it, it you know, we, and we can talk to, Ker, uh, to Johnny Ray about it too, but in one of these dream sequences, Kerwin tells Daniel about what he feels like he's about to go through next or where he's going to go. And it's not what I think we often see in shows like this where, uh, and certainly not characteristic of Southern uh, religion or religion in the South, where uh, either heaven or hell awaits us based on the decisions that we've made um, in life. But we learn that Kerwin is on death row because he was involved in a drive-by shooting. And, and in that shooting, he accidentally killed a young kid, a young girl. And when Daniel asked him where he's going to go next, Kerwin says, I got to go meet that little girl. And yeah. there's something to me that felt so right about that line. So a tribute again to the, the great writing staff on Rectify. But the way that Kerwin delivered it, it's like, th- there is Kerwin guilty of killing that little girl? Yes. Did he intend to kill that little girl? No. There's a complexity there that I think transcends this idea of, oh, well, that can all be addressed by one of those two traditional places in the afterlife. Um, there seems to me something more challenging, more morally and ethically right and difficult that he has to go face that young girl. I wonder, did that resonate with you at all? Am I making too much out of it? How, how do you respond when you think about those kinds of things in terms of the complexity of what awaits us, you know, beyond this life potentially? You know, I did think that, Ryan, I really agree with you. It, it it kind of actually grabbed me and and pulled me out of myself when he said that, because I thought you th- you think of this very kind of one dimensional view of the afterlife, 
And you don't really expect a TV show is going to say, we're going to get take you to purgatory. You know, like we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, yeah. in, unless yeah. it's lost or saying elsewhere or something, and it turns out to all be a weird dream sequence or whatever, and, and it's messing with you. And, and it's, I think the reason it's probably not done that much on TV is it's not done well. But here we get a sense that point. it's it's a little we don't know because it's Daniel's subconscious during a coma. Um, but and it's hopefully something we can talk to Johnny Ray about here in a minute. But um yeah, he seems to be on some kind of a journey and he's gonna have to face the victim of his crime, which that's what I'm saying. When when he said that, it just grabbed me by the throat a little bit. Um and yet he, the way he plays it, he doesn't play it like Kerwin's scared. To he, he's not afraid to meet his maker, quote unquote. He's like, this is my journey, right. and like, I guess this is what I got to do now. Just like when he's being taken last episode off to his his execution, he doesn't uh, he doesn't seem fearful. He doesn't fight it. He's not struggling. He's he's resigned to his fate. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to look his best friend in the face for the first time. And I for take the first it. time. Yeah. And I want to, and I, you know, so not to belabor this theme, but you know, just something that you said about purgatory, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking is Daniel in purgatory is it, you know, yeah. Yeah. uh, what he's having to go through facing his, the victims as we see in one Oh six and two Oh one, um, of re- receiving their wrath, right. Of trying to, reacclimate to culture that it really he really is kind of trapped in a purgatory of his own yeah yeah yep i think that's right and and i uh it's 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 a fascinating um it's a fascinating turn of events and i just really am looking forward here to turning a conversation over uh to our johnny ray gill who plays kerwin looking forward to this yeah what a great um what a great opportunity. So let's now uh, turn the corner and have that conversation with Johnny Ray Gill. All right. We are happy to welcome Johnny Ray Gill onto our uh, Killer Serials podcast here to talk about Rectify. He plays Kerwin. The uh, Kerwin Whitman, we find out, is uh, even after his death, is Daniel's best friend. In We're talking about um, episode 201, but we can also look back, Johnny Ray, on all your uh, different appearances in season throughout season one. I, I just want to start with this question of um, I always get a a little. It can be a little cringy sometimes. You're watching TV and there's a if there's a dream sequence. I, I I'm what I'm saying is it's really hard to pull off a good dream sequence, and sometimes it seems like a shortcut in the writing you know, to get a character, uh, to, to make some, to develop in some way or whatever. But man, I really thought this, uh, this, dr- there were a couple dream sequences, I guess we could call them or coma sequences in this episode. <laughs> what was it like to read those and then act those? You must've known it was something special was happening. Uh, yeah, yes. And no, I think we had to, me and Aiden had the, the chemistry, uh, from the you know previous part of 
our work together before we got to episode, uh, you know, 106 and then, you know, subsequently 201. So I think we knew we had a special chemistry. I think we knew we had created something special with um, with Kerwin and, and Daniel. I had, I had always called them, I think they were past best friends. I think when you go through an experience like they went through, I called them eternal best friends, almost soulmates in a certain way, um, where you're bonded by this experience that takes you past anything that could, you know, take place in the, in the, you know, natural or, uh, humane world. Um, so when you, uh, when I was playing Kerwin, he reminded me of a character from, a, from named Jefferson from a, a, a book called a lesson before dying by Ernest J. Gaines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in that book, it was always about, you know, Jefferson becoming a man, uh, before he, uh, passed on. And so I wanted to make sure that Kerwin, who I- until, you know, uh, season two, because of the experience of African-Americans in the criminal justice system, I was, I was playing Kerwin as if he was innocent, um, because of so many of the, you know, forced confessions that transpire. Obviously we see that mm. happen with, uh, Daniel, um, Troy Davis was a huge inspiration for me at the time because he had just been executed, um, in, in Georgia. Um, and you know, we, we see that there's this presumption of guilt all the time with a lot of criminals and specifically a lot of, or a lot of people that are in prison, I should say, and a lot of uh, people of color in that regard. So for me, it was less about Kerwin being this person that committed this act as opposed to this person trying to find a spiritual uh, wellness, trying to find his way in the afterlife. Um, and then I just let the writing, you know, as the as the showrunners wanted it to be and the writers wanted it to be, I let it, you know, guide me in in one way or the other. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you, Johnny Ray, about before we get to the, it's so intense this this episode two hundred one. I want to ask you about in season one when you and Aiden were acting. Though, what was it like to act through a wall, or how, like how did they? How was that directed and set up? Were you guys really on two sides of a cinder block wall talking through a a grate, or how did that work? Yeah, it was it was it was similar to that. I don't think they were actual cinder blocks, um, but it was set up that way. And of course, I've never been on a on a death row before. Um, I had never been in a in a prison situation like that. So for me, it, it was it was being you know uh, chained up in that manner. Like I was having a lot of uh, sense memories um, from you know the African American experience in the past, hmm. um, and you know when you when you when you when you walk in there and you see that this is a space that these individuals have to be in for twenty three hours a day. Um, that's no that's that's smaller than many bathrooms. You see the mental trauma and the places and the and and and, and, and how tragic it is. And so for me and uh, Aiden, we just developed a, a way that these individuals might talk and be able to keep each other um, at peace while they have to go through such a horrific experience. Is it, it is it hard to act when you can't see your acting partner like that? No, because I, I, uh, Aiden's a trained actor. I'm a trained actor, so I think that there's things that you can do with your voice where you can hear. Um, uh, you can you can you can hear what they're doing, and, and and sometimes the voice can be even more impactful on how um, it you know affects you. And it actually made you know in 106 when I saw his face for the first time. That was that was a quintessential moment in my career when Kerwin asked, "Can I see my friend? I have hmm. that. Please just allow me to see him." And I didn't know what Aiden was going to do, but it it almost reminded me of a windshield wiper of sorrow, 
because the way he rakes into the, the, the small window. And, you know, when I remember when I was in, in, in graduate school, my Shakespeare teacher always said that we as humans, we have this, this guitar string that goes through the center of our, center of our bodies. And you don't have to, your body doesn't know if your mom died for real or if your mom died on TV, you just have to play the right notes. So that was one of those instances where, you know, you, you see this, you, 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 I felt this pain. I felt this sorrow. I feel this connection. I feel this stuff just because of the way it had been set up throughout the entire season. Because again, while we were working together, I never got a chance to, you know, to really see him. Hmm. Hey, I think this, uh, Tony kind of led into a question I had for you, which uh, we've talked about this over six episodes of the podcast. The brilliance of this series is the way in which it forces its viewers to think about the social uh, injustices and and those themes and issues. And maybe we want to touch on those in a minute. But how? But at its heart, it's a deeply spiritual show yeah. about about these individuals, right? And and the effects of these injustices on them. I wonder, can you talk a little bit about the conversations you had with writers and maybe even conversations you had with Aiden about that kind of second part, right? About the, about the spiritual components, the more humanistic elements. Uh, in what ways did the writers help you find this character? In what ways did you help them, um, if that was the case? And, and, and maybe how you and Aiden, through conversation, helped each other shape each other's characters. It was really organic. I don't remember any specific conversations about, um, you know, the spirituality because it's in the text. Um, right. I know that I know that for me going into the show, it was very important for Kerwin not to be, you know, one of their one of those curled lipped uh, NCIS characters. <laughs> um, and I know that we had, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, uh, I know we had had conversations about that. Um, about, you know, how to make him authentic to this time and space, to, the, to you know, to, to Georgia, um, to this, you know, almost spiritual journey. And so that was important for me. And I wouldn't have, you know, allowed it not to be there. I wanted, I, I thought that if these two guys are friends, you know, they would potentially share books and, and, and share meditation uh, 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 efforts and styles and things like that. Cause you have to imagine that, you know, if these people have been in there for 10, 15 years, that there's, there was never a set time how long Kerwin, you know, had been there before his ultimate demise. Um, but, you know, I went in there and I was like, well, if he's been in this place for such a long time, well, this would be his treehouse. This would be where he masturbates. This is be where he prays. This is be where he meditates. And you kind of set up this imaginary like landscape that allows somebody to, I don't know, lives, some kind of full life inside of these confines. Um, but I, I, I'll always be thankful for the text because if it wasn't for the text, you know, I don't think we wouldn't have been able to get there. And that's credit to Ray and everybody else who, you know, worked on, worked on, worked on the show because it gave us, you know, that roadmap, you know what I'm saying? To be vulnerable yeah. and to be, you know, and to, and to tap into that. And I think that's one of the things that it, I watched the two episodes last night and it caught me by surprise again that, the first season is the first seven days that he's been out of, you know, that he's been yeah. out of prison. And the vast, like 99% of these stories is the guy's been in prison for 20 years. He gets out, has a stake, goes and has sex with a couple girls. And, you know, he's out for revenge or whatever it is. And to see this person that has lived the vast majority of his life under these confines and who is innocent and come out and have to be like, Oh my God, a Walmart. Like, 
Yeah. Oh my yeah. God, a, 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 what is this balloon red thing? I've never seen this or a PlayStation. Like it, it's, it was, it was phenomenal. So when you see those kind, that kind of nuance, he, I know Daniel has that great monologue when he's at the door, he goes to Amantha's house yep. and he's like, I never, I never considered somebody else would answer the door. Um, those so are the many variables. There's of. so many yeah. var- variables out in the out in the world. It, yeah. We have talked about that. We you know we had a couple writers on uh, a couple episodes ago, and they talked about that too. Just the the writing constraint of doing this day by day journey, and here we are in you know 201 is basically like day seven or whatever day eight. Yeah. Um, and we we're we're being very disciplined about not watching ahead, so we don't actually know if this pace of the show changes or what characters um come to the fore and things like that um these these coma slash dream sequences that you have are so compelling i think i mean the one where you come back into the cell and kerwin you know opens the cell he's a bit it seems like he's a bit confused these are obviously daniel's dreams or visions while he's in a coma so you're saying that you didn't know until you got this script for 201 that Kerwin had killed uh a child in no I didn't I didn't and I don't I don't I didn't and I know we had had conversations about um you know if he did if he if he did or didn't but those were decisions that I made and my thing is this just like Daniel we have him on tape admitting that um you know he killed this girl. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if Kerwin actually did what he said he did. Was it a forced confession? I don't know. I just know that my job as, as an actor and as a, you know, somebody who wants to, uh, you know, put a spiritual imprint on this, on this project so that, you know, people have a commentary on, like you said, what's going on in the criminal justice system, what's going on, um, uh, in the way that we evaluate, um, you know, our, our, our humanity, it was if it was true, it's like, wow, it's less about the act. And wow, now that I'm in the afterlife, that's something I'm going to have to atone for. How does that work? Um, and that's where art is amazing, because you can have this mix of spiritual and metaphysical. And is this is this Daniel's dream or did he somehow tap into some other part of some other matrix or some other dimension where Kerwin is like really actually experiencing this? where he has to go on this journey. And that's where, like I said, it goes back to, you know, the Ernest J. Gaines novel and Troy Davis and, 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 and all these individuals that put to, that where I say this story doesn't stop just because this guy has been, you know, uh, has been executed. And, you know, even with, you know, what happened with, um, with Ahmad in Georgia recently, where those individuals, you know, tracked him down and murdered and killed him. That gentleman's story might not be over because they're they he, when you turn the page nobody knows essentially what happens there you know what i'm saying and i was wanted to explore what that could be you know what i'm saying that's so, so that's so beautiful because uh, the strength of the show is the way it's baked in southern culture of which religion is such yeah. a big part of that and yeah. you know maybe we can talk about this later but you know, most of us are familiar with this notion of, of right, if you die, either heaven or hell awaits you, right? Yeah. Um, but this show really complicates that. And I, I've, I've recently, and maybe the last 10 years or so, thought that with the complexity of life, those two options seem very limiting, right? That yeah. that how is our afterlife not as complex as the lives that we live 
uh, here on earth. And when, when you talk about, or when Kerwin talks about what's next for him, uh, that's something that we don't often think about growing up in conservative religious communities, that what may be next is I may be facing the people that I've harmed. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, when the, the deli- your delivery of that uh, felt so right. Uh, that when you think when you think about something like that, it feels morally right. Um, it feels like it mirrors the complexity of our existence. Um, and I just I wanted to say it's not really even a question. Just I thought that that sequence was was extraordinarily beautiful, even though it meant something terrible for potentially terrible for Kerwin, right? Yeah, of having yeah. to face that that victim. Well, I I do have a question based Ryan on what you've just said, um, Kerwin, whether it's um, in you know season one where he's alive or season two in these post-mortem kind of mystical appearances you you play Kerwin as someone who's basically not afraid to die and not afraid to meet his fate even if it means facing the victim of his crime and so I'm wondering just like if you can reflect with that on uh, on that with us a little bit of like, why did you choose to play Kerwin as someone who's on death row uh, and yet seems somewhat at, has found some kind of peace at, is at peace with himself? I just thought it was a more complex take on the character. Um, uh, you know, when, when if you've committed an atrocity like that, um, the atrocity happened. How do you atone after that? Uh, just like uh, Daniel says in, in the script, he says, Kerwin, you're a good person. He, the same way that he had to tell Daniel, like, I know you didn't do this. Right. I can feel it yeah. on your on your yeah. on your uh, on who you are. Um, so for me, it's a, it's 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 always about taking cues from, you know, beautiful actors and artists who have come before me that don't want to be rooted in stereotype, don't want to be rooted in two dimensionality. Um, you want to make sure that you're addressing the human experience and what and what a gift it is to be able to address the afterlife human experience. Because, again, ultimately, nobody knows. I love what you said about the complexities of life and how can the afterlife be almost more, how, be less complex, especially if, you know, it, this world was created <laughs> to be complex. You know what I mean? So. For me, it was just really all about Kerwin's spiritual journey, about what it means to atone. I thought a lot about, there was another uh, book that I thought about, The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album, um, was another book that I had in my mind um, that kind of shakes up this idea that there's these finite uh, places that you can go and maybe that there is this, um, you know, uh, kind of peanut butter jelly sandwich of, re- of reality here and spirituality there and the cosmos and all these places. And I just wanted to inject Kerwin into that. How uh, this may be a big picture uh, question and we could either come back to it or, or just dive into it now. I wonder if you could talk about how you got involved with the series, like what that what your story was like, what led you to or led it to you um, in the first place. I, it's not glamorous. I just auditioned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember I went in, yeah, auditioned. I went in, I met Ray, met casting. Um, I can't remember if it was the same, you know, uh, material or anything like that, but I just really connected with it, um, did some work. And then next thing you know, um, I thought I was going to go to Korea and hang out with some people and teach English in, uh, in, in Seoul. And then I got a call around 4th of July that I needed to get my, get my butt to Atlanta because 
we were going to be uh, going down to going down to Georgia. So, um, or going, you know, going out to I believe Macon or Griffin, wherever we shot. Were you based in? Uh, but, were you, you know, based in New York or LA at the time? Because you've done some theater work as well, LA. right? Yeah, based oh, in LA. LA. Okay, based cool. LA. And I can see from IMDb the one thing I can tell my boys is that I talked to somebody who's in Red Dead Redemption too. <laughs> so that's pretty solid. That's pretty <laughs> solid credit when it comes to like high, my high school son, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I get a lot of I get a lot about Red Dead, and I get a lot about Clash of Clans with the Hog Rider voice. I've had to yeah. call a lot of uh, birthday parties and Hog Rider. <laughs> People go crazy. Well, before we let you go, is there anything um, you're you know you've worked on? I mean, we'll I'll have one more. We'll have one more question for you about Rectify. But anything you've got out currently that you think our listeners should look up and watch? Oh, yeah. I've actually just found out yesterday a film that I directed, uh, produced, and um, starring in called DVD and Chill. Um, just got accepted to to screen at the San Francisco Black Film Festival. Um, so that's going to be out Congratulations. Online. Oh, thank you very much. Um, that's its third festival thus far. Um, it's going to be – it'll probably be online at some point later in the summer. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things up in the air, obviously, with COVID. And if film festivals are going to continue to screen theatrically later in the year or if they're going to transition to being online. So you guys can look out for that. Um, got another film called Sometimes I Feel um, that's, that I shot in London. That's going to be uh, coming out online as well. So, you know, I got some really great things uh, uh, in the fire. How are you? You brought up COVID uh, just f- for our listeners who are all quarantining. How are you? How are you making it? Uh, what What's getting you through these? these wild days uh routine uh talking to family and yeah. more routine um and not necessarily a set i do this at eight o'clock or i do this at nine it's just knowing that i have tasks i'd like to complete and for me this has kind of been a meditation of sorts it's mm-hmm. kind of taken a lot of uh it's taken a lot of you know bs from the world away to where i rediscovered reading in a way that i hadn't read before i wanted to i literally looked at my bookshelf and I said, I don't want to be the cat that has all these books on my shelf and have never read them. <laughs> yeah. So I took, I, I picked the, the, the long, I picked Lord of the Rings. I said, I'm going to get through this. I'm about to be finished with it. I'm on like 900 now, Rosetta, page 900, not Rosetta Stone, video games here and there. I can't wait for Last of Us to come out. I got um, it pre-ordered. Yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. And so, you know, just kind of just having these tasks and it's been a lot of self-reflection a lot of, you know, diving deep in, you know, uh, like they say in, um, uh, uh, what's that book um, by, by Rainer Maria Rauch, I'm blanking, uh, Letters to a Young Poet, when he talks about going inside yourself, there's been a lot of that during um, the, this, this COVID situation. So I'm thankful for it. And, um, you know, hopefully people are, you know, finding some kind of, uh, I don't want to say betterment, but some kind of peace and some kind of, uh, uh, yeah some kind of forward momentum while all this madness is going on, whether that be politically, um, because I I know that people are losing health insurance, people are losing their jobs and all those other kinds of things. Um, So hopefully we can, you know, rectify those things going into the election and, you know, transition into 2021. Yeah, I got got one final question for you before we let you go. And we so appreciate you uh, coming on. You know, we picked Rectify because a lot of TV critics – we're writing in the Washington Post, New York Times, like, hey, you know, binge-worthy series. And I saw on two or three different lists, critics say, if you, you know, up there with The Wire, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, if you're looking for a show to binge that is of that quality, 
go to rectify. It hasn't been seen by as many people, but it's that good. And that's uh, why we chose it. Why do you think looking back, having been so involved in it, why, why do you think it's has that legacy of really being like one of the top quality shows that stacks right up with some of the best sh- series of all times? I think because it, it came from a place of un- unadulterated truth. And that's really hard to do in the TV film world. Um, there's not very many people and kudos to Mark Johnson and everybody at Sundance um, that allowed it to take place. But I mean, there's not many people that really want to dive into the, into the mental health struggles of somebody who's been falsely imprisoned. There's not many shows that want to dive into the friendship and the spiritual bond between two individuals that are on death row. There's not too many people that want to, you know, talk about the, the, the arrogance of people presuming someone to be guilty of a crime he scientifically didn't commit. I think there's so many, there's so many um, opportunities to take that afoul again with prostitutes and fast cars and, and gun chases and all this other kinds of things. Um, so I think the poetry of the series and the, 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 the artists from, from, from actors to every other, you know, vine in between, I think that's what made the show what it was. I don't think anybody knows, can ever know what, um, you know, a show is going to do, how it's going to be received. I remember telling Aiden, I was watching this performance and I said, bro, man, you're going to get your, get your Emmy suit ready, <laughs> get all that stuff ready. Cause this is, I think this is the quality of work that we're doing. And, you know, unfortunately we didn't have the eyes, but that happens to series all the time where I know I was just reading some articles about Spike Lee's bamboozled, where at the time people were saying critically it was horrible, but then. Now it's it, we we they people realize that the movie was ahead of its time, and I think people continually discover Rectify on Netflix and on other you know mediums, and they're like, wow, this show's really powerful. Um, and I think because of all those things that we're talking about, spirituality, friendship, um, the criminal justice system, um, the unfairness of it, and then people having to un, in, uh, you know endure that fairness, the, the tragedy it bespokes on on families and communities and things like that. Uh, I think people could relate because like I said, these things are, are still, are still happening. Man, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. And your, your character is just one that I think anybody who watches the show will always remember Kerwin because, uh, he makes such, such an impression and, and, uh, the scenes in this episode 201 are just so intense uh that scene out in the woods looking at that statue man it's like you're holding that you're holding that statue's head in your hand and i don't know if it was meant to be an allusion to hamlet but uh (laughs) there was something in there (laughs) he's telling get back to living yeah you caught that to be him yeah all i'm saying yeah (laughs) (laughs) love it so good so good facts Fun fact: While we were shooting that, it was it was it was terribly cold out there, uh, so it was it was it was horrible trying to you know we just had those jumpsuits on. Yeah. But uh, Aiden had a bad back, and I didn't know it. <laughs> so um, you know you're practicing things in your hotel room and all that kind of stuff, and I was trying to figure out what what is that exuberance when you find out you know that this major occurrence has happened. And so, you know, I was thinking about doing a cartwheel. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then when I jumped on his back, it was hilarious because uh, he was like, Johnny, please don't do that. My back, I can't, I can't. And so I was like, okay. So next take, I didn't do it. 
Next thing I didn't do it, and uh, uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal ran was running down the hill from the tent. Like Johnny, what are you doing? Why didn't you? Why did you got to jump on him again? That was great. And so I'm like, what he said, his back is really jacked up. So that's like a. So every time I see that scene, I just I laugh because I'm like, we had to choreograph it to where I could do it. So you know, I wasn't putting so much strain on his back. But oh, that's. I seen beautiful. Yeah, that scene is beautiful. It brings me to tears every time I watch it, and it's weird yeah. to watch things and you say. It doesn't feel like you where you're just kind of watching it and going along. So I was just last night I was in here, you know, crying, saying all I'm saying. Ah, all I'm so saying. good. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, it's beautiful. You guys are doing this, um, you know, uh, uh, very, very poignant insight. And people need a lot more of that in today's culture. So uh, Godspeed. Thanks. Thanks.